Happy Tuesday, my friends, and welcome to the Life Church Canton podcast. My name is Sam. If this is your first time, thanks so much for listening. I hope that you guys all had a great Memorial Day weekend. Uh, I know that I did. My wife and I got got to be outside a lot, and that was a ton of fun. And I got really sunburned because um, I didn't think I needed sunscreen, but I did. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I hope that you guys had a good weekend. I wanted to to share some news with you, as this is a little bit of a different um, intro to the podcast than we normally do with the sermon clip. Um, as a lot of you probably know, if you've been listening, I, uh, in addition to hosting the podcast, I work full time at the church as the tech guy and um, a lot of other slashes of things. Um, but I just recently accepted uh, a position as a real estate videographer. So um, my time at the church is coming to an end, and I'm so thankful for all the time that I've spent at Life Church and just the ways that I've got to see God move over the past four and a half years has been amazing. Um, so I wanted to let you know that that uh, listeners of the podcast are no longer going to hear my voice in the front of these episodes, but uh, Pastor Jared actually is going to be the one that's going to be hosting that. So you all are in great hands. Um, you know, Jared is uh, our associate pastor, and he's going to be able to share with you uh, even better insights than than I can, obviously, and um, as he's one of the speaking pastors. So just wanted to let you know that, um, and uh, that'll be taking place in the beginning of June the Jared will start taking over that so um, I'm thankful for everybody that's listening to the podcast it's uh, let me be goofy and and have some time to play like a radio voice Um, but anyway here's Daniel uh, with his message enjoy welcome everybody welcome to Life Church Canton my name is Daniel I am one of the teaching pastors here at Life Church I want to say a welcome to all of our first-time visitors all of our first-time guests and our returning guests, you could have been anywhere in the world, but you chose to be here with us, and we are thankful for that. We're excited that you are here with us. We would love to hear from you to see how we can serve you now or in the future, and so if you would type I'm new in the comments section so we can care for you and see how we can serve you now uh, or in the future, uh, we'd love to connect with you. I also want to say a welcome to my Life Church family. It's been some time since we've been able to gather together one place and worship together. And oh, I miss that. And I'm sure you do too. But I look forward to that day where we're able to worship together again in one place. But until then, I'm thankful to God that we are in a season of life that we at least have this opportunity, this medium to be able to connect. Well, this morning, we're going to be continuing our series in Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We have been in this series now for a few weeks, and it's been a great series so far. In week one, we learned about the author the audience, and the aim of this letter. We also learn about context and how it's important to understand and know the context. Context is key in all that we do, especially in reading the Bible. In week two, we learn about our adoption in Christ and how that affords us all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. In week three, we learn about the greatest prayer and the greatest pursuit in life is to know God and to be known by God, to know the fullness of what God has provided for us in Christ. And last week, we learned that we are God's piece of work, God's masterpiece, his opus magnum, his peculiar poetry created by God and empowered by him to live out that purpose even in this season. Well, today we're going to be unpacking Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22. But before we do that, 
Before we unpack this text, let's center our minds on God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for all who are watching. I thank you for all that will watch in the future. I pray, God, that your spirit will be with us even now. I pray that the spirit of God will use the word of God to reveal the son of God so that all that we do may be done to the glory of God. Amen. Well, wherever you are, take a seat, stand, whatever you feel comfortable doing. But I want to talk to you about something today. I want to talk to you about the fact that we are all searching for something. Whether we know it or not, whether we even choose to admit it or not, we are all searching for something. Something or someone, we're longing for it. We're searching for something or someone that we think will make us whole. This search or longing may look different depending on your personality, depending on your life experiences, depending on even the stage of life that you find yourself in. This search and this longing could look different for you. For example, when I was a teenager living at home with my parents, I longed for freedom. I longed for for independence, if you will. Well, it won't be long until I realized that my longing uh, was totally something different. I was longing for this independence that I thought would make me whole. And it quickly changed when I realized with independence comes responsibility. And with responsibility comes bills, bills, and more bills. Or, for instance, when I was in college and I was longing for graduation, looking and searching and longing for that day that I will be able to walk across that stage and and take my degree and earn myself a great job and, and life would be happily ever after. I would be whole. Well, I was in for a rude awakening because I would soon learn that the job market was highly competitive. Not only was it highly competitive, employment was not guaranteed. You see, whether it's a degree, whether it's a career, whether it's marriage, whether it's children, you fill in the banks. Whether it's church or a certain lifestyle, we are prone to chase after better, to chase after more, to chase after what we think will make us whole. We are prone to long for the next best thing, hoping that he would give us what we need or what we think we need, be it happiness, love, significance, influence. We're always on the search only to be disappointed or have our expectations drastically lowered. You see, the longer I live, the more I, and the more time I spend on this earth experiencing disappointments, pains, and sufferings, minds and others, the uncertainties of this life, the more I long for something different. The more I long for something that I can sink my teeth into, something that I can rely on. You see, life is filled with all kinds of uncertainties that make us anxious, and restless. And I know I can get an amen in there. And if you feel like a type of amen in the amen, in, 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 in amen section, in the comment section, because I know we can relate to that, that life has a way of making us restless and anxious and longing for something different, something to make us a whole. Think back, if you will. Think back. Can you imagine? Do you imagine? Did you even imagine a few months ago? I know COVID has a way of robbing us of our memory, of our joyful memories of each other. But think with me for a second. Did you imagine that you would be where you are today? Did you imagine that you would be sheltered in place, alienated from loved ones, from your family and your friends? Did you imagine the fragile state of our union, or shall I say our disunion, as a people, as a nation, and as a world? Did you imagine the chaos that our world is currently going through? 
To say that 2020 has been a disappointment so far is an understatement. The greatest understatement, perhaps, at this point. You see, the longer I live, the less concerned I am about cars, about houses, about money, about things that have little to no lasting value because they cannot make us whole. They were never meant to make us whole. They cannot calm our restless hearts. The longer I live, the more I long for peace, but not a transient type of peace, not a peace that fades, not a peace that is only present in the absence of stress and grief. I long for a peace that is ever-present, regardless of life's circumstances. Can you use some peace right now? Can you use some peace of mind, peace in your heart, peace in your soul? Well, our text today speaks of peace, uh, an eternal peace, not a circumstantial peace, not a peace that is dependent or contingent upon the circumstances of life or the conditions of life. This peace is not found in something. This peace is not found in a concept. It's not some sort of concept, some theory. It's not a philosophy, a new age philosophy, or even a type of lifestyle. This peace is found in a person. This morning, we're going to be looking into what Christ is, who Christ is, and we're going to be talking from the subject point of Christ, our peace. Now, in order to guide our time, in order to help us lean into this text a little more, there's three observations that I want us to explore, three observations, three points even if you want to uh, call it that, three movements perhaps, but three observations that are right out of this text that will help us unpack what it means for Christ to be our peace. First of all, we're going to see that Christ, our peace, or the peace of Christ, binds us together. It binds us together as one new man, one new creation in God. Secondly, we're going to see that Christ, our peace, or the peace of Christ, brings us together to God the Father as one brand new household. And thirdly, we're going to see that the peace of Christ, the Christ who is our peace, it builds us up into a temple into a holy sanctuary for God. Let's unpack that first observation. The peace of Christ, which brings us together as one new creation. Now, the first 10 verses of chapter 10, I mean chapter 2, Paul has been unpacking what it means to have personal reconciliation with God. You see, in, as Paul says it, we were dead in our sins. That is, the, that is the indictment of God on all humanity. We were dead in our sins and we have now been made alive in Christ. We have been personally reconciled back to God. Now this section, verses 11 through 22, now turns to corporate reconciliation, particularly reconciliation between the Jews and the Gentiles. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. Paul starts this section as he does the last section, verses 1 through 10. He starts it with a reminder Read with me, if you will. Therefore, remember that formerly you, you who, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, a circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What a depressing state to be in, to be without God, to be without hope. Paul reminds the Ephesian Christians and, and even us that as Gentiles by birth, they and us were far away from God. 
See, the Greek word that's used here to, to, to translate it as Gentiles is the word ethnos. This is where we get the word ethnicity from in our English Bible or in our English language. I want you to keep that in mind, though. As we walk through this passage, I want you to keep in mind that understanding of that word. But I'm fond for defining terms. What exactly is a Gentile? Simply put, a Gentile is anyone or any people group who are not Jewish by birth. And therefore, they are without a relationship with the covenantal God of Israel. They are far away from God. You see, for centuries, the Jews, the so-called circumcision, looked with contempt on the Gentiles, the uncircumcision. For centuries, they, they derided them. There was division between them. They hated them. They disliked them. To say that the Jews, the Jews disliked the Gentiles would be a gross understatement. There was a mutual hatred for each other. Gentiles experienced social and spiritual alienation. They are in our COVID era now. I know you can relate to at least that first part, the social alienation. Socially, Jews did not associate with the Gentiles. They saw them as inferior, as less than human beings. In fact, in some Jewish writings, Gentiles are referred to as wild beasts and animals and dogs. Spiritually, though, as well, Gentiles were cut off from God. They were without his benefits, the benefit of his protection, his provisions, and his promises. Both his temporal right now promises and his eternal ongoing future promises. The Ephesian church, being made up of mostly Christians, seemed to have been harassed by the Jews. They were being harassed. Why? Because they were, they were seen as inferior because of their ethnic background. Uh, this sort of discrimination is not foreign to our concept in America. This is exactly what happened to black Christians who were being harassed by other Christians, so-called fellow Christians, because of their ethnicity. They were treated as inferior, as second-class citizens because of their ethnicity. And sadly, this still goes on today. Now, I know that some of you may say, here we go talking about race again. And yet still, some of you may say, it's about time we talk about it because the Bible speaks about it. But let me say something that needs to be said. God in his word has a lot to say about race. And it's my duty, my calling to be faithful to God and to all the implications of his word. In fact, how can I be faithful to you as a teacher and a preacher of the word of God if I skip around and don't look at the racial implications of this text? You see, Jewish Christians thought that they were better than the Gentile Christians because of their Jewish heritage, because of their Jewish privilege, if you will. So simultaneously, as Paul is writing to remind the Gentiles of their formal state, away from God, apart from God, without hope, he is also writing to humble ethnocentric Jews who saw their heritage as more important than their new identity in Christ. He reminds the Jews, the so-called circumcision, that their circumcision was man-made and not the true circumcision. In fact, in another letter, Paul writes about the Jews who only had the outward sign of circumcision, that they are not the true Israel of God. He says that they do not have a relationship with God. You see, whenever you think of anybody else as inferior or yourself as superior because of your heritage, your background, your ethnicity, or your education, or whatever it is, you prove that you don't have a relationship with God. You cannot be a racist and then claim to be a follower of Christ. One claim cancels the other. Circumcision was meant to be an outward sign of an inner reality. 
It was a token of God's covenantal promise, his, his contractual promise with Israel. But the significance of that, the significance of that sign ceased when Christ came to the scene. Why? Because Christ was what the sign pointed to. A sign points to something else. And when Christ arrived, there was no need for some superficial sign anymore. Because Jesus is the reality that the sign pointed to. You see, in Christ, the true circumcision is a circumcision of the heart, where God cuts open the heart, that the heart is exposed and now can absorb his truth, that a heart that was once far away from him is now close to him, captured and raptured by him. This is a God thing if there ever was one. God did it. God does it. This is what the outer circumcision was meant to point to. So what was supposed to be a distinction based on spirituality or on their closeness to God was corrupted and used as an opportunity for racial and ethnic prejudice. Having reminded the Gentile Christians of their past apart from Christ, Paul now spends the rest of this chapter unpacking yours and mine and their new identity in Christ. I'm fond of saying that verse four of this chapter contains what is the biggest but in the Bible, that we were dead and we are now alive. If that's the biggest but in the Bible, then the second biggest in the Bible is verse 13. Uh, Verse 13, look with me if you will, says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far away, far off, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. You were dead in your sins and your trespasses, But now, in Christ, you have not only been reconciled to God, but you've also been reconciled to each other. Gentiles who were far away from God without hope have now been brought near by the sacrificial death of Christ. So Gentiles, or anyone for that matter, Gentiles is all of us who are non-Jewish, should never feel inferior or incomplete because of your ethnicity or because you don't carry this outward sign of circumcision because you have the real substance which is Jesus Christ. You see, they now have Christ who is their peace. Christ himself brings peace between Jew and Gentile, black and white, fill in the blanks, any division, any disconnection that there exists in this world, Christ is the peacemaker. Not only the peacemaker, he is the peace. But his peace didn't just bring these two groups together to be merely cordial to each other. This was not a separate but equal kind of peace. His peace goes deeper. It goes beyond mere tolerance. Look with me, if you will, in verse 14 and 15. It says here, For he himself, Christ that is, is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. How did he do it? By abolishing in his flesh the enmity. Oh, I wish I had time to unpack the fullness of that. But he abolishes the enmity, the hatred, the division, the schisms that exist between these two people. And it goes further, he says, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he himself, Christ himself, he might make those two into one new man, and thus establishing peace. You see, Christ's peace unites them and unites us. It unites us all into one new body, one new man, one new race. The peace of Christ brings us together, unites us, and makes us one. If you are a Christian, Christ's peace has removed all hostility, 
all divisions between us. But we need to live in light of that truth. We need no longer to allow man-made societal labels such as race and political parties to divide us and define us anymore. You see, together we are a new creation, a new people, a new culture. But that's not all. That's just the beginning, folks. Because Christ, our peace, not only binds us together in himself, but he also brings us together as one solid new people to God. This brings us to our second observation. The peace of Christ brings us together to God, the Father, into one new household. Look at verses 16 through 19. And he reconciled them both, Christ that is, in one body to God through the cross. By having put to death, there goes that word again, the enmity, the hatred, the divisions among them. Verse 17, and he, Christ, preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who are near. For through him, we both now have our access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 19, so then you and I are no longer strangers from each other or aliens to each other, but we are fellow citizens with all the saints and we are all part of God's household. Folks, there are many implications that we can unpack here. Unfortunately, I don't have the time to unpack all of them, but there's at least one implication that's very pertinent, very pregnant for our situation as a church today. Perhaps I can flesh this out by asking a few questions. As a Christian, as a believer, or even as a non-believer, when you look at the church and you read through the Bible and now you look at the church today, do you ever wonder why the church is not experiencing the same power and presence of the Holy Spirit like the first century church? Do you think about that? Do you think about the outpouring of God's spirit then and how the church seems altogether cold and dead now? Do you ever wonder why even in your own household, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit is either limited or non-existent? Look closely again at verse 18. For through him, who? Christ. We both have, underline this, our access in one spirit to the Father. You notice something there? Do you notice the plural nouns there, the we and the our? You see, it's our unity in Christ and our unity through Christ that binds us together in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then gives us the privilege to access the Father. If you read through the book of Acts, the chronicles of uh, the accounts of the church, the first century church, and how the church spread throughout Mesopotamia and throughout the world, when you read through there, you will see an interesting phase, a phrase right before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. If you sneeze, you might miss it. Here's what the phrase says. And they were gathered together in one accord. Think about that for a second. Right before the outpouring of the Spirit, they were unified, gathered together in one accord. I know some people used to joke and say, it must take a lot of love to get into one Honda Accord. That's not what, it says they gathered together in one accord. They were united. I have a question for you. A question for me too. Could it be that we as a church were only, only experience the outpouring of God's power when we're truly united in Christ? Could it be that the hindrance or, or what stops us from experiencing the unmitigated power of God as a church and as a body 
It's because we lack unity in Christ. Going back to verse 18, Paul makes it very clear that the resources of the triune God only belongs to believers who are united in Christ and with Christ. The Holy Spirit then takes those believers and and unites them together, makes them one household, and then takes them and brings them before the heavenly throne of God the Father. One of our brothers here, my brother here, uh, uh, Steve, always talks about how one of his favorite verses in this book of Ephesians is that we can boldly access God. Folks, the Spirit unites us. The Spirit of unity, as he's called, brings us together before that throne. It gives us permission to enter God's presence and to request what we want. The Holy Spirit presents us before God. You see, unity in the body is not a secondary issue for God. It's a primary gospel issue for God. Unity is very important for God. Christ died for the unity of his people, the unity of his church. You see, a divided church or a divided Christian household grieves the heart of God and robs itself of the confidence and the power to access God through the Holy Spirit, the spirit of unity. Christ, our peace, has bonded us together as one new people, one new race, one new man. But not only that, he has also brought us to God, to our new father, as one household. With all the Old Testament and New Testament saints, with all the saints, black, white, purple, yellow, green, of all time, Oh, we are now one big family. What a blessed family that we belong to. What a rich new heritage that we now have in Christ. You see, whatever your family background is, good, bad, or non-existent, we now have a new family in God. We are now God's household. This brings us to our third and final observation. The peace of Christ builds us up into one new temple, one new sanctuary. Look at verses 20 through 22. Paul writes, Having now been built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, that that cornerstone word there, I could spend a whole sermon unpacking that, but Christ himself, the cornerstone, the foundation, the load-bearing stone, one that fits it all together. Verse 21, in whom the whole building, notice, notice this plural again, not just part of the building, but the whole building is being fitted together and is growing into what? A holy temple in the Lord. In verse 22, in whom you also, all of us Christians, are being built together as a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. Do you understand the weight of that? This just keeps getting better and better. Or as my niece would used to say, this just keeps getting better and better. You see, it's more than enough that Christ saved us, that he saved us from our sins, and that he saved us from eternal death and from the wrath of God. That alone, that act alone is worthy of eternal praise. And it's even much more than enough that he has also brought peace between you and I, between Jew and Gentile, and with God. But it ain't over yet. If we were in person, I would say, tap your neighbor and say, it ain't over. But we're not. So in the comment section, tell your neighbor, say, it ain't over yet. Let me see if I can unpack this for us. Because I don't think we, we grasp the weight of what this is saying. First of all, what is a temple? Let's define some terms. What is a temple? The word temple used here refers not to the outer temple or the entire building, but speaks specifically of the inner 
temple. The sanctum sanctuary, the holy of holies, the place where the glory of God and the visible presence of God dwells. This has huge implications for us. But let's unpack at least two major implications. First of all, this building into a temple where God will inhabit for all eternity, this passage here, this portion, speaks of our inseparable union with God. Let that sit on your soul for a second. That God is building you into a place where you will never be separated from his joy and his love, from his very presence, from his power and his promises. We will be united with God for all eternity, and we will know unending joy and peace in his presence. Secondly, though, the fact that we are in a process of being built, this means that we are still under construction, that the scaffolding is still up on our souls. (laughs) This means that whatever you may be doing, whatever you may be going through, that your story isn't done yet. (laughs) That's an amen moment if I ever heard one, that God is still working on us. Now watch this. So if the God of heaven hasn't given up on you, then you can't give up on yourself. You see, it doesn't matter who may have left you, who may have given up on you. The God of the universe has not given up on you. Why? Because you're so special? No, because he loves you with an everlasting love. You see, if you don't hear nothing else from me today, if you don't pick nothing else from this sermon, I want you to hear this. Perhaps God moved me all the way from Maryland to tell you this one truth, that it ain't over yet, that he has a glorious future for you, and God love it. I can see that glimpse in you now, that God is working on you. God is moving you into his body, and God is making you into a temple where he will dare. Your story ain't over yet. So don't you dare give in to sin or Satan or secularism. Don't you dare pull your uh, feet off the gas. Keep pressing. Keep pushing in. Because you are being built into a glorious temple for God and by God. So keep pushing into Christ. Keep pursuing him. Keep leaning on the spirit of the living God. But it ain't over yet. It ain't over until the fat lady sings. And I have it on good authority that God has muted the fat lady until he is done building you and I into his temple. We are being bound together in Christ, brought together to God, and we are being built into the greatest wonder that the world will ever see, into his temple. For the Christians who are in the room, wait for the action steps. Stand by for these action steps, because I have a few for us. But I want to take this opportunity to talk to you who might not be a Christian, to talk to you who might have walked away from Christianity. I want you to hear me and hear me clear. Your story ain't done yet either. Your story isn't finished either. Your story, in fact, has just begun. You can know Christ as your peace. Just earlier today, I got the news that one of my favorite uh, apologists, Ravi Zachariah, died of cancer. Decades of serving the Lord, and I guarantee you by the authority of God's scripture that he knew God's peace. He didn't have to worry about where he would spend eternity. Life is not promised, folks. The next second is not promised. This season alone has proven that that things can change and we need God's peace. You can have his peace now. Let me pray with you if I could. You may say to God, I hear this preacher speaking and he seems passionate about what he's talking about. I want to know this peace, Lord. 
I know that my life is filled with ups and downs and chaos and, and things that I have been going through and uncertainties about where I will spend eternity. I need you to save me, to give me your peace. The Bible says anyone, anyone, that means anybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And my belief is if you called on him sincerely, he will save you wherever you are, in your bedroom, in your living room, in your bath. God is there. You can encounter God even there. Come to him. And if you feel bold enough, you can put in the comment section that you have now surrendered to Christ or you want to know more about Christ. We would love to connect with you. Now to the people who are in the room who are Christians, here are some action steps that I have for us. Action step number one. I want you to take a survey of your life. Specifically, I want you to ask and answer this question. Is Christ your peace, especially in this season? Now, as a Christian, you may be tempted to say yes quickly, but I want you to dig deeper. Here's a clue. Whoever or whatever you run to at the time of need or during your crisis and your stressors, that's your peace. You know, this week I woke up to flooded basements to a flooded basement, to water everywhere. I thought I was going to be like Noah, y'all. I thought I was going to be trapped in the ark and have to float away through Michigan. And I found myself tapping back into my property management background. I was calling insurance companies, technicians, plumbers. I was making things work. I was letting things go. I was moving and moving and moving and shaking. I never paused to just rest in the Lord. You see, for me, what I go to in the times of crisis is my ability to coordinate things my ability to make things happen, my ability to numb myself to the things and just push right through. Hey, because it's got to happen. Decide today. Decide to lean into Christ when the times are hard or even when the times are good. But when you're stressed, lean into Christ because he is your peace. Action step number two. And I'm going to lean in a little bit more on this one. Is there a brother or sister in Christ that you are currently estranged from? Are you currently divided or disconnected from another fellow heir of eternity? Another person made in God's image? I want you to reach out and make peace with them. And if he or she is not willing, you're not off the hook. I want you to keep praying daily that God, Christ himself, will bring peace to you. Because if he could do it for the Jews and Gentiles, then he can do it for you and that person. And then finally, as you continue to read through the book of Ephesians through this series, I want you to hone in specifically on chapter 1, verse 17 through 20. Paul gives us a great, deep, robust prayer. And I want you to pray that prayer daily. I want you to pray that prayer daily for yourself, that you would know the depths of God's love for you and the inheritance that you have in Christ. I want you to pray that for Life Church. That we all as a people, as a new man, as a new creation, as a new household, will know together the peace of God that comes from knowing that God had you in his mind before the very foundations of the earth. Then I want you to step in a little more. And I want you to pray Big C Church for the entire church worldwide. You could pray for specific churches if you want to, but pray for the entire body of Christ. Because if it's true 
The kingdom power, as I like to say, is only for kingdom purpose. And God's purpose is to glorify him by bringing a people together who would otherwise be separate. Then the church will never know the depths of God's power and the heights of his power unless she is united. Pray that we would know unity in Christ. Not uniformity, not causing one body, uh, one part of the body to look like the other party, but bringing all those diversity and becoming a university, unity in diversity and glorifying God together in that unity. Pray for that, for yourself, for your church, and for the entire body of Christ. You could even pray that the world will come to know that peace, to come to know God. I want you to stand by after this for the digital lobby. We will have an opportunity to pray together or fellowship together if you are able to. But I want to say this, and I pray that it lands on your soul, that may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard, keep your hearts in Christ Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you want to find out more information about Life Church Canton or other churches in the Life Church Network, you can go to lifechurchcanton.org/now or fill out the form linked in the show notes, and someone from the church will reach out to you with more information. If you watched Life Church online for the first time this past weekend, we would love to know about it. We believe that life isn't meant to be lived in isolation, but we want to connect with you and learn to live like Jesus in community together. If you want to email the show, you can do that at podcast at lifechurchcanton.org. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying it, please share it with a friend and leave us a review. Once again, my name is Sam Parham, and you've been listening to the Life Church Canton podcast. Have a great week, everybody.